0: Hi, this is Lily and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. If you're in the neighborhood, we'd love to meet you. We meet on Sundays at 8:30 a.m., 9:45 a.m., 11:15 a.m., and 12:45 p.m. at 65 East Williston Avenue in East Williston, New York. Now that's only until October 14th when Beacon will be going mobile and we will be meeting for worship on Sundays at the Viscardi Center at 9.30 a.m. and 11.30 a.m. The address is 201 IU Willets Road in Albertson, New York. One last thing, Beacon is now a non-for-profit, and if you shop Amazon, who doesn't? You can select Beacon Church of Long Island as a supporting organization and a small portion of each purchase that you make will go to supporting the work at Beacon. Remember to shop at smile.amazon.com and select Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. Thank you and hope to see you soon.
1: Fall, people love fall. It's my favorite season. It's not a competition. My favorite season that I'm voting for in America's next top season is fall. (laughs) People that love fall, they go crazy for the foliage. They're like, the foliage! Let's drive by the foliage! It's so beautiful the way the leaves die. They're so pretty right before they fall to their death. We think it's beautiful. It's the leaves' hospice. (laughs) It also helps that the leaves can't talk. If they could talk, they'd be like, ah! Give me chlorophyll! Why are these people driving by and smiling at me? You monsters! We're rather insensitive to the leaves' tragedy. They die, they fall to the ground, we just rake them up. (laughs) Kids, you want to jump on this pile of dead leaves? (laughs) No? All right, I'll just light them on fire. (laughs) The poor leaves, all, all they know is spring and summer. And Then in October they're like, where's everyone going? Early in November, you always see a couple leaves hanging on. They're like, I'm gonna make it. <laughs> I'm gonna make it through winter. Me and my buddy Carl, right? Carl? Carl. <laughs> the pine trees, they must resent the attention the leaves get. Stupid leaves. It was driving by looking at the pretty leaves. I didn't bother to get to know them. After a couple months, they're dead. Come December, you'd be climbing a ladder, stick a star on my head. Why would a pine tree sound like it's from Brooklyn? How many jokes about seasons does this guy have? Thank you, Pastor Jim.
2: I can assure you that ties in very tightly with what we're talking about today. Everyone loves fall, but I don't know about you, the fall is busy, Right? The weather's changing, that's nice, but man, there is so much to do. I think almost every one of us still has our lives tied to the school calendar in some way. So once September starts, it's like an explosion. Just bang, there's so much going on. I was away for a couple days this week, and you know, the church here, not only is it a regular fall, but we're getting ready to go portable for the first time. I walked in this room, and it looked like there had been a tornado in here. I mean, there was just stuff everywhere, because the fall is so busy, and we just, we get feeling overwhelmed that there's so much going on and so when we start to talking about being sent on the mission of God that we're called to go so often our response can be I I don't know that I can do any more than I'm doing now you probably feel like you're working too much right and we all know the 40-hour work week that's done nobody's doing that anymore Right? Going home and leaving your work at work and being home at night, that doesn't usually happen either. Your work has a way of following you there. You might have to bring home projects to do or papers to grade or work might just you know, be able to reach back out to you because of all of your electronic devices, so that doesn't work. I've even been told that there was a time when people worked five days and then they were off for two days every single week. Well, We know that's not happening anymore. And if you feel like you're working more than ever, you're not wrong. A recent study found that New Yorkers are working 49 hours, eight minutes a week on average. Good news, that's number one in the country. No one is working more than New Yorkers. Number two is San Francisco, I guess they're writing all that code in Silicon Valley. Number three is D.C., it's probably not the politicians, it's probably the lobbyists working nights and weekends. Number four and five are both in Texas, it's Houston and Fort Worth, I guess you work a lot to buy the big truck. I don't really know that one. There's so much work. You're at your job so much. Not only that, good news for you. New Yorkers are now commuting over six hours a week to and from work. Also number one in the nation. Yay. And just a little freebie for you, there was a study done in 2011 that in couples, marriages where one partner commutes 45 minutes or more, are 40% more likely to divorce. So if you feel like the train is ruining your life, you might actually be right. So we're so busy working, but actually, you know this. It's why people come to New York. You know, when you talk to people, they say, hey, why did you come to New York? I came to New York to start a family. Said no one ever. That's not why people come to New York. Why do they come to New York? Because they want to make it further in whatever it is they do, whether it's arts, whether it's finance, you know, whether it's you know, fashion. Whatever it is they do, they want to go to the next level. So I'm sure there's a thriving you know, fashion community in Phoenix. But if you want to go next level, you come to New York. And there might be a couple of classical pianists in Modesto. But if you want to go to the next level, you have to come to New York. In fact, this is the American dream, right? You can come from anywhere in the world. You can come to our country, most often come to our city, and you can work and you can change your life. If you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. You know this. We are New Yorkers. We are workers. And so if you're hoping that now we spend the rest of our time talking about how, listen, we're all working too much and we should be working a little bit less, I have bad news for you. That is not what we're talking about because the Bible teaches that to work is to be in the image of God. God was a worker. How does it start? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And this word for creation is unique. It's the word barach. Say that. Barach, you're not spitting enough. Come on, Barach. It's not the president. Okay, this is an ach, ach, all over the mic, ach, okay? And this word is unique. First of all, it's usually, it's it's uh, completely reserved only for God himself. It's the act of creation from nothing. Creation ex nihilo. God started with nothing, and he created the world. Now, you might be creative. You might be able to produce amazing content or art or some, you know, special you know, unique gift that you have for creativity, that's because you're made in the image of God, but you can't create from nothing. Only God can do that. But what's second about Barach that's very interesting is it is a word of effort and of labor and of striving. This is not that God had a magic wand that he flicked and the world was made. It's a connotation of digging in, of working, of really efforting. The end of creation, by the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. The principle of Sabbath comes from being rooted in the fact that God had put in work. He had been fully, completely engaged in the act of creating to the point that the God of the universe rested from his work. God put in work in creating the world. By the way, this is totally different and contrary to how many other ancient cultures viewed the creation of the world. See, many cultures have origin stories about how the world started. The the origin story in the Bible was revealed to Moses by God himself, and it's divinely inspired, and this is the way that the world began. Other cultures would write their own story for how they thought the world started. So, for example, in Babylon, one of the oldest stories is called the Enuma Elish. It's a really long story, much longer than Genesis 1 and 2, but it all boils down to this. There was a whole community of gods, they believe. And one of the gods was named Marduk, and he killed off some of the other gods, and then there was a great cosmic battle, and Marduk killed the beast and slit his gut. The guts fell out of the beast, and that became the earth. Lovely, right? Then the other gods said to Marduk, this is going to be a lot of work maintaining this world that you just made. We're not up for this. Marduk said, I'm not up for this either. They said, I'll tell you what, I'll make a lowly being, kind of a scrub. They can take care of the earth and that will be man. So they believed that work was an afterthought because the gods didn't want to have to do it themselves. Or the Greeks, they have Pandora's box. What came out of Pandora's box? A heartache, bitterness, and labor, toil. So they believed Work was a punishment. It was an evil. The Bible does not teach that work is a curse. The Bible teaches that work is a mission. Genesis 2, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. So in paradise, God was working and man was working. This is not after sin came into the world. You don't work because of sin. You work because you're created in the image of God. God works, and this is the mission that he has placed on your life. Now, and this is contrary to what many ancient cultures thought. You know, the Greeks would have loved to see Jesus come as a great philosopher, as the ultimate Aristotle. The Romans would have loved to see uh, Jesus come as a great statesman, debating in the Senate. The Jews wanted to see Jesus come as a general directing them militarily the pharisees wanted to see jesus come as a religious leader he came as none of those he came from a working class family a family of carpenters from a working class town in fact when the disciples were first forming around him one of the questions they asked each other was what good can come out of nazareth it's a working class town working class people we are created to work Now you're thinking, Chris, what about work-life balance? I mean, isn't this what matters? We need to balance work and life? Because it sounds like you're saying work is life, and I'm not cool with that. I want to balance work and life. Well, let's talk about that, because it depends what you mean. If you're talking about balancing work versus doing nothing, that's an conversation I'm not really comfortable with. If you're saying, you know, I just need more veg time. I need more time to myself. I need more time doing nothing. I don't believe that's what the scripture teaches. I mean, let's be honest. When you Netflix and chill, nothing good happens, okay? Now, if you're talking about, hey, I want to learn how to balance my job and my family, the work I'm putting in at my job and the work I'm putting in with my family, that's a conversation that I want to have. If you're saying, listen, I want to talk about balancing the work I'm putting in at my desk versus the work I'm putting in at the gym, working out, yes, I like that very much. I want to balance the time I spend working in my cubicle versus the time that I spend outside working in nature. Yes, that's a balance I'd like to talk about. See, there is a balance, but it's not work versus life. Work is life, and it's making sure you're committing to the right kind of work. Because it's committing ourselves to the wrong kind of work that, adds to that feeling of kind of dread and frustration, of saying, I'm just I'm not comfortable with this kind of work. So, what kind of work were you created to do? God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it rule over the fish in the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. This is what you were created to do, to subdue the earth and rule over it. These words are of great strength, power, and authority. And it's very clear, men and women created to rule over the earth, to subdue it in your strength and in your power, to say this Is the earth and we are in charge of it. There's an immediate tension that comes because the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. So, how do we bring those together? How do we start to understand that we rule and subdue the earth, but the earth is the Lord's and everything in it? This is a fascinating role that we find ourselves in ruling, subduing something that is not ours. And in our world and in our culture, we see this in a whole variety of different ways and different terms and different philosophies, but it's very common in some ways. The most familiar word to you is probably to be a steward. A steward is almost like a, a butler, someone who oversees a house. And as they oversee the house, they take care of all of the affairs that the house needs in order to be run properly. They don't own the house, but they oversee the house and they care for the house. Or, from a financial perspective, you might be a trustee, that you are ruling and subduing the finances of someone else. They're not your own, but you're in charge of administrating them and leading them. You might be the trustee of an estate. So someone has died, and there's some money that's left, and their wishes direct it to be used in a certain way. A trustee, or sometimes a group of trustees, will ensure that the money is used according to the wishes by which it was established, right? Right? Or a conservancy is the same type of idea. Central Park has a conservancy, a group of people who care for the park, who are in charge of the park, who make sure the park is used properly, that it's well cared for, that it's looked over, but they don't own the park. It's not theirs. In fact, their mission is to make sure that nobody ever owns the park, but they're making sure that the park is forever preserved and cared for. So trustee, steward, you know, conservator, a trust, an executor, all these words are similar. And so for us, we're going to pull them all together under that heading that we call stewardship. That's the most common term that you'll hear in the church for this type of role that we're called to play. And I think there is a tension that starts to come up in us. Because as we are raised, especially in our world, you know, you can be all that you can be, you know, be the best version of yourself, we start to ask, what if I don't want to oversee someone else's property? What if that's not the role that I want? I mean, what if in Downton Abbey, I don't want to live downstairs, I want to live upstairs, And there's a tension that starts to come in because we're not always convinced that we're overseeing someone else's property. On a regular basis, we start to come back to the fact that we're trying to build our own empire. We're trying to put together our own world, order our own resources for our best benefit. This is when we start to realize how much the gospel completely changes our lives. When we understand that Jesus was given for us, that Jesus in his life, his death, his resurrection, has restored, made right everything between us and God. That the only thing that truly matters has been forever repaired and made beautiful, perfect, and glorious by the person of Christ. And after that moment, we live our entire lives in the service of him. What we do, who we are, what we have. The gospel completely changes our hearts until we understand that it's all God's, that none of it is ours. See, it's sin that calls us to selfishness, to holding things aside for ourselves. It's sin that calls us to waste and to be miserly. It's sin that calls us to be, you know, spenders when we should be savers or savers when we should be spenders. It's, instead, it's the gospel that changes our hearts from the inside to say, everything that I have is his. And it's my honor to serve in his house. Paul said it this way. He was talking about himself and some of the people he was doing ministry with. He said, this then is how you ought to regard us, as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Entrusted. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove to be faithful for who makes you different from anyone else. What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Already you have all you want, already you have become rich. Everything we have is in a trust from him that we are called to be responsible with. And so what is Paul's result? Second Corinthians, he says, I will gladly spend for you everything I have and expend myself as well. So we have this role of trusteeship. And this can actually be something that's very fun and kind of exciting in a way. You know, I think one of the most famous trustees in all of the world might be the guy who shows up at the house with the publisher's clearing house check. Wouldn't it be fun to be that guy, right? He obviously drives a minivan because this check doesn't fit in a Prius. So he shows up with the check, and he says, Congratulations, you have won millions of dollars. It's not his money, He's not giving away his own money. He's a trustee for the money in this contest. Or maybe you're on a college board, you're serving as a trustee, and you might have a role in giving out scholarship money. How fun would that be? That other people have given, other people have been generous, other people have remembered their alma mater. I'm sure you all get this email, right, every month to remember your alma mater, right? So they're fundraising this money. Then they get to give it away. And the trustees say, we're happy to give you money for your education. Even a doctor serves as a trustee, as a steward in some ways. Because when a doctor sits down with a patient and says, great news, your cancer is in remission. That's not something that the doctor did on her own. No, that doctor built upon generations and generations of research and of knowledge and of experimentation and of collective growth, and they drew together those resources and said, you know what, for you, this patient, let's try this particular combination, and then it proves effective. You know, most of the doctors at Sloan Kettering are not the ones doing research in the lab. They're trustees of the knowledge as it's passed down to them. They're stewards of it, and they use it to change lives as a steward of the knowledge that already exists. And we have that same opportunity to be stewarding the resources that God has given us. And for the next few weeks here at the church, we're gonna talk about the concept of stewardship. Today, we're gonna talk about financial stewardship. And the next couple of weeks, we're gonna talk about stewardship of our time and our talent to be serving in the mission of God. Now, as an aside, a lot of churches are very squeamish about talking about money they feel like it's reinforcing a stereotype that people have a very negative impression of what happens in the church and when they talk about money and I think in some ways that's true I also think in some ways that's outmoded I think that was a lot worse maybe 20 years ago but I understand people are concerned about talking about money in church here's the reality I'm going to give it to you as straight as I can the way that we manage our money reveals more about our heart than maybe anything else Jesus talked about stewardship of your money all the time. He talked about it more than hell. It was very important to him. It's very important to us. So for us to be here together as a church family, serving in ministry in the richest region of the richest country in the history of the world, to not talk about this is to withhold the gospel from one of the most important parts of your life. So we need to talk about this as a family because it's how we grow. Now, we don't talk about this because the church needs money. I don't need a raise, nothing like that. The church is doing quite well. I'm talking about how we can grow in our hearts in what God is doing through the stewardship of his resources. And so what does that look like practically? I'm a very practical person. We say, okay, I wanna learn how to steward my financial resources in the way that God has called me to. We can talk about three principal areas. The first one is this, the concept of tithing. You've probably heard that word, the tithe. Tithe simply means 10%. 10%. The scripture teaches that we should return to God 10% of everything that he's given us as just part of our worship of him. And that this concept of tithe and the 10th is in many verses, such as Leviticus 27. One-tenth of the produce of the land, whether grain from the fields or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord and must be set apart to him as holy. If you want to buy back the Lord's tenth of the grain or fruit, you must pay its value plus 20% count off every 10th animal from your herds and flocks and set them apart for the Lord as holy. So in their world, to say, make sure you set aside 10% of your produce, your flocks, your herds, that was the way that they you know, conducted themselves financially. I don't know if any of you have flocks or herds. If you do, I would love to come to your house. I think that'd be really fun to visit your flocks and herds. I have cousins in the Midwest, they have herds, and it's really fun to go there. Uh, by the way, when you feed cows, they run towards you, and that's scary. But anyway, that's not, that's not for today. But he's telling listen, everything that you have, a tenth of it is immediately God's. And we believe that the most effective way to do that is we do that here in the local church. Your leaders are committed to this. Many of our congregation is committed to this, that we immediately return 10% of what God has given us back to him. And then we have a group of people here at the church who decide how we're going to send that out on God's mission, that 10%. Jesus affirmed this when he was teaching. He was talking to the Pharisees, and he says, What sorrow awaits you, you Pharisees, for you're careful to tithe even the tiniest income, good, from your herb gardens, tithing to the point of silliness. But you ignore justice and the love of God. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. So Jesus is saying tithing needs to come out of what's happening in your heart, not out of some, like, you know, legalism to the point of being funny. Like you're even tithing herbs, like they're splitting time and like, well, here's 10%. Now, on top of that, tithing, you also have other financial tools and opportunities available to you that you may be not even aware of. Many of your companies do corporate matching. We have several people here at the church who, who do this. Your company that you work for may join you in your support of a nonprofit corporation and send along grants. Our church is a full-blown nonprofit organization. We didn't used to be because churches don't have to be. You can just be a church and be a charity. But we've pursued this because it does open up opportunities like this for matching gifts and for grants and other things. So you can just poke around at your company and see what they do. A lot of times they'll match what you're doing to a certain point. And this is a way of your company just saying, hey, we support our people and what they support. You can also do something simple. You know, do, do any of you shop and Amazon, anyone? All right, just, all right, there's a few of us. The rest of you are, are lying. How many of you don't like to raise your hand in church? Ah, good, good, you get that. By the fourth service, they're all gonna raise their hand and be like, oh, wait, no, I don't, because they sleep in, trust me. You could do Amazon Smile. You know, Beacon is one of the charities on Amazon Smile that you could support through just when you shop. It's something that Amazon does. They, give, they don't tithe their billions, but they give just a little, little, little bit. And of course, we've been talking about this and it wouldn't even make any sense for me to not talk about it now. We are, as a church, coming together right now to do something significant financially because we want to go all in on our opportunity to become a portable church. And we've talked, and if you're a guest today, we don't talk about finances or money very often, but we're also very open. So I want you to know this project that we're doing, going to the Viscardi Center, is one of the most expensive things we've ever done. The startup costs alone are what we would normally spend over about five months. And we'd spend it all pretty much in the last 10 days. Our ministry leadership team is very excited when they get their financial reports. We have the money to do this already. We could just pull it from savings and we could just use it. The reason that as a leadership community, we don't wanna do that is that will hinder our opportunity down the road to pursue purchasing property, which is still a long-term goal. And so if we pull a bunch of money out now, we will, you know, we will, in the short term, be more comfortable, and in the long term, we will come up short. So we would love to, as a church, come together and, through stewarding God's resources, fund as much of this project as is possible. I don't say this to put pressure on you. There's no special offering at the end of this service or anything like that. Just something that I want you to think about and pray about, how God might be calling you to steward his resources in the pursuit of what's happening right now with this portable church project. Because if we come together, if we go all in, not just in serving and working, but also giving, there's... There's a germination there that happens, and you will find consistently in your discipleship that as you invest in growth, as you invest in, in your faith, you will see return in that. Years ago, when we were first starting out, we were, I don't know, we were kind of punks back then. We did this thing. We did a tithing challenge. We told people, listen, if you will tithe for 90 days, if at the end of 90 days you come in and you say, well, that was a disaster, God didn't use that in my life. We told them, hey, if you tied for the 90 days and you wished you were not a tither, we'll just we'll give it all back to you, no questions asked. And people to this day have told us how that changed their perspective on resources and on finances in a way, and they, they grew in that moment in a way that they never gave back. And we have that same opportunity now as we come together and we choose to pursue stewardship on behalf of what God is doing in our hearts. So I'm going to ask the band to come up, and we're going to sing together. But as we do that, I have one more thought. I've been reading, and Robert has too, this book by Mark Batterson called All In. And Batterson says something in there that when I first read it, it frustrated me. But I couldn't let it go, and the more I thought about it, the more I think that he might be right. Batterson says, when it comes to stewardship, there is no such thing... As sacrifice. So, what we often will say is, we need to sacrifice material things in order to invest in the kingdom. That's the giving message that you normally hear in most places. You need to sacrifice in order to be generous. Batterson says, you cannot sacrifice what was never yours. It's not a sacrifice because everything that we've been given belongs to Him, and it's His right to use what we've been given for His mission for his way, in whatever way he calls fit. It's not a sacrifice. It's stewarding what he has given us in order that we can show that Jesus has the highest place in our lives and has created us for this time and for this moment. So I'm going to invite you to stand, and normally at the end of a sermon like this, we would pray, and we are going to pray. And as you stand, I don't want to pray over you. Oftentimes, I'll pray, and you'll sort of agree silently, but instead I want us to pray together. John Wesley is one of the you know, great heroes of the faith from previous generations. And John Wesley had a prayer that he would pray in his own life, they tell us, almost every day. And it became such a core part of who he was that as he became a denominational leader who started churches in the Methodist tradition, this prayer became a part of their special services, their covenant services. And it's a prayer of dedication to say all that we have is God's. So, I would love for us to pray this prayer together. Then, after we pray, we'll sing. Let's pray. I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. Place me with whom you will. Put me to doing, put me to suffering. Let me be put to work for you or set aside for you, praised for you or criticized for you. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and fully surrender all things to your glory and service. And now, O wonderful and holy God, creator, redeemer, and sustainer, you are mine and I am yours, so be it. And the covenant which I have made on earth, Let it also be made in heaven. Amen. Let's sing.